Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now. I'm your host, Mike DiCipato, and this week I am joined by Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall to discuss San Francisco's banning the sale of e-cigarettes. And then Rick and I sit down to discuss the broader implications of the U.S. Justice Department's investigation into whether poultry producers colluded to keep chicken prices artificially high. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors voted unanimously Tuesday to ban the sale and distribution of e-cigarettes within the city limits. Now, Juul actually accounts for 70% of e-cigarette sales, so it's basically a ban on Juuls. And when I talked to CU Liu, our non-smoking tobacco analyst, she told me the San Fran ban was actually in response to what city officials saw as milk toast FDA regulation enacted in 2018 to curb the usage of e-cigarettes by minors. Now, usually here's where we would do a stat card for Juul, our uh, story protagonist. But Juul is a private company. However, we do have a stat card for Altria who distributes Marlboro cigarettes in the U.S. and owns about 35% of Juul. We rank Ultra at a double B. But this is a story that touches on an industry-level problem. According to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, 90% of smokers start before the age of 18. So companies obviously know this. Minors are their biggest customer base. That means Ultra knows this. Philip Morris International knows this. We rank Philip Morris at triple B, by the way. Uh... British America Tobacco knows this. So what these companies have done is they've gone on an aggressive campaign to try to rid their advertising of anything that might explicitly attract teens, like banning flavors and only using models over 25. But these companies got to make money. So Megan, Rick, if 90% of your consumers are listening to Billie Eilish when they start smoking, that must subvert any window dressing that can be done by a PR team, correct? It does. And, you know, I I think it's fair to look at the tobacco industry and say that you can have companies that are worse and companies that are better um, in terms of how they address this marketing thing and how much they quietly target children. But, you know, at the end of the day, the product is harmful. Different products may be harmful to different degrees, but the the long the longevity of the industry depends on getting young people hooked. The product is addictive. If it wasn't addictive, they wouldn't sell nearly so much of it. And it's bad for people's health. So you can have less bad and more bad. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that the whole industry in the long term may be looking at diminishing viability. Not tomorrow, not next year, but if you look at trends among regulators and if, globally, and if you look at trends among investors globally, people are looking at the tobacco industry, and whether that's e-cigarettes or heated tobacco or the old-fashioned kind, and saying, you know, we're not sure that this thing has legs long-term. A lot of the reinvention has not been to to you know, come up with new products or come up with healthier products, it, it's been reinventing themselves as a business so that they're better they're they're better able to uh, move into and compete and lobby in markets where they still have an opportunity for growth. 
Yeah, but that growth is basically supported by e-cigarettes and vaping, right? I mean, that's where the industry seems to be going. So can Juul, which actually people do claim is better for you than cigs, that's never going to be proven by the FDA, but uh, the companies certainly claim that it does. Um, does that mean tobacco companies can rebound from diminished growth using e-cigarettes or the variety of e-cigarettes that are out there? I think in the short term it will. And I, this is entirely anecdotal, but I have a number of friends who are high school teachers. And they talk about catching kids vaping in class because with Juul, they, they don't have this billowing vapor to give them away. It can be very subtle in their sleeve or their phone case or whatever. Uh, so you, you can see that it's happening. And obviously, this is where the concern is coming from the FDA and from San Francisco and and, uh, you know, all sorts of folks commentating in the media and yeah. so on. But, you know, I'm still thinking here longer term. So, like I said, not this year, not next year, but over the, the coming decades. There's just widening recognition and understanding that this is not good for society. And I think investors are seeing not only is there this social impact to it that they may be concerned about from an ethical perspective, but that they seem to think that the regulatory regimes globally are going to crack down more and more and that the industry is not going to be a good long-term bet. The um, e-cigarette invention, that particular innovation um, in, in this industry has given them longer legs than they would have previously. But I agree with Megan in the long run. These are, these are products that are so harmful and so addictive that they ultimately will be banned in most of the, the world. I don't think, you know, to be honest, I don't think they will be banned. But the, I think it's an interesting question in terms of, in terms of what these kind of companies mean for ESG investors, because when it comes to investing in tobacco or, or fossil fuels or guns, can a company that has a dangerous product make itself more sustainable in any way? I mean, you do have a brand, and you can make that brand more responsible, or or you can ensure your product is only marketed to adults, or you can clean up your supply chain. Yet you are making a dangerous product. How can you remove yourself from that? Because this, this is the same kind of thing you can say for fossil fuel companies. W what if we move to clean energy, 50% clean energy? And Rick, could you answer this question for me first? Because we actually talked about this before our call, and you, my friend, prevaricated and did not give me a straight answer. So uh, take us in. Okay, let me be clear. They can do it for a while, but ultimately, I would say no. Mm -hmm. Not without getting into a different business altogether. And I think an interesting corollary, you brought up fossil fuels, and there's an interesting comparison there. It, there's, there's some debate going on in the investment world around tobacco companies and likewise fossil fuels about divest versus engage. Yeah. Is it, is it worth holding these companies so that you can talk to them and try and get them to change their behavior or change their product mix? And the idea, like if you think about natural gas as a transition fuel, you know, long term, it's a fossil fuel, it's going to have to go for a low carbon economy. But in the shorter term, it's a lot better than coal. And so different investors come down in different places on that, uh, as do different environmentalists. And with good reason, it, it's one of those things where reasonable people can take different views. And I think you you could look at this whole tobacco industry thing somewhat similarly, where you look at the e-cigs or these other products that are less harmful, but still addictive, still somewhat harmful, and think, well, maybe it's part of a necessary transition before the whole field just goes away. I don't know that I believe that personally, 
but there's the, the debate is going on out there. And I think this comes back to the question that you're asking, Mike, is, you know, can you be better if not good? Can you be a more sustainable if not actually sustainable tobacco company? And, you know, again, I think it's a lot about time horizon and that different people are going to disagree on it. And part of that disagreement is going to come down to what their investment time horizon is. And it's, and it's also going to come back to where we started this story. It, you know, if if this were a transition product, then we'd be talking about the process of weaning off a prior generation of addicts. But we're not talking about that with this law. We're talking about You're preventative. Right. You know, we're hoping to prevent a new generation getting hooked, which would you know have no other effect but to extend the life of these uh, these companies in this particular industry as currently um, organized for another generation. Okay, for our second story, the U.S. Justice Department launched a criminal investigation into whether top poultry processors colluded to keep chicken prices artificially high. The processors involved are Tyson Foods, Pilgrim's Pride, Sanderson Farms, and Purdue Farms. So I want to give you our stat card as we do. Here's the context. Unfortunately, Purdue isn't covered by our ESG research team, but Tyson and Pilgrim is ranked at a double B, and Sanderson Farms is at a B. However, after giving that context, I don't think illuminating on each of these companies' different risks is vital to the story because this story is more about antitrust law than how we industrially farm poultry. At any given time, there are about 20 companies under investigation for anti-competitive practices or antitrust violations, and while that is only about 1% of the MSCI Aqui Index constituents, the rulings do weave themselves into the structure of the U.S. and global economy. So Rick's here to discuss how this is going to impact the economy. And Rick, I ask you, who is most impacted by this chicken collusion? In previous cases, the idea of colluding to set a particular price can be disadvantageous both to consumers and to suppliers. It's the real problem here is the power of the corporation being being used to abuse um, the competitive marketplace. And yeah. it impact consumers. It could impact suppliers. It could impact other uh, members of the supply chain, you know, distributors, truckers. I mean, it, it, these things um, have a way of filtering out. But the the ultimate concern is um, abuse of corporate power. And, and the idea here is to prevent manufacturers to from um, taking undue profits by coordinating their efforts together and artificially inflating prices. Well, okay, but how, how is that different than, say, Amazon? And but Well, before I go into that, I want to give some context quickly about antitrust laws in the U.S., if I may, um, because initially antitrust laws were established to protect uh, economic structuralism. And then in, in the 1970s, there was a new interpretation of the law uh, by what is now called, I think, the Chicago School that said, actually, what we care about with antitrust is price theory. We want to make sure prices are low for consumers. And if one day chicken farmers, for example, were to ever collude um, and they make chicken really expensive, well, that's a problem. I want my chicken. But OK, so going back to Amazon after that. Um, and, and keeping that in mind, doesn't Amazon set prices in mass? Like, 
Is there a difference between chicken collusion and Amazon saying we're only going to charge nine ninety nine for these plastic buckets no matter what, and so everyone has to pay that price? Well, the difference is, is simple. The, the difference is that there are other vendors like Walmart or Target or eBay. or I mean, there, there's a multitude of other options that a consumer would have to purchase that product or its equivalent. And so in that case, it's a totally different circumstance. Now, you, there may be concerns about the size of the market where Amazon is the dominant player or even, indeed even the only player, um, and, and those things can be looked at. But it's a very different kind of situation from, from what you're talking about with the, the chicken products. Well, why? There's chicken. There's small chicken producers. They, we, we can all go find another chicken producer, can't we? I mean, Purdue and, and Tyson and, and all of them do have a big market share. But technically, I could go to a smaller-scale chicken farm, right? Te- technically, you could, and you could go local um, at least part of the year. Um, but the, the, the way the law is organized, it looks at the degree of um, control asserted by the parties involved over a particular market. So it's not an absolute thing. It's not like there are no options. It's, it's the percentage of, of influence. Um, so there's a oh, number okay. of complicated things that have to be looked at in order to, to trigger this. All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to rate and review us. And, of course, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.